Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Inflation is picking up the pace again. New numbers today say inflation is at its highest in 40 years. What is the price Americans are paying? What do the feds plan to do? The massive trucker protest in Canada has inspired U.S. truckers. Now a group in the U.S. is planning a protest of their own, potentially impacting the Super Bowl and Biden's State of the Union address scheduled for March 1st. We share what we know about their route. The largest supermarket chain in New York City has seen a 50% increase in shoplifting, but they don't plan to close any stores. One of the managers says they just caught another repeat offender yesterday. A Florida bill is drawing national attention. The Parents' Rights in Education bill, mocked by critics as the Don't Say Gay bill, could ban the promoting of discussions about gender identity from some classrooms. And gold on the ice, gold on the slopes, and gold on the half pipe, as Team USA has its best day at the Olympics. New numbers out today on just how high inflation is in the U.S., and it's worse than many economists thought. Americans have certainly been feeling the pinch, with everything from groceries and cars to housing costing more. NTD's Chenny Wu has the details. Across the country, prices are rising faster than they have in four decades, increasing anxiety for many Americans. According to data released Thursday from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the U.S. Consumer Price Inflation Index rose 7.5% over the past year. That's the steepest climb in prices since 1982. Senator Joe Manchin Thursday called on the feds to do something about the rising prices. This is not a time to be throwing more fuel on the fire. We have, an infl we have uh, inflation and we have basically uh, an economy that's on fire. But President Biden says his administration is using every tool it has to manage inflation, adding that... I'm going to work like the devil to bring gas prices down. Business owners have been heavily hit. Avi Kaner, co-owner of Morton Williams Supermarkets, says he's struggling to keep prices down. For example, the price of beer went up by 10% last week alone. And John Schnatter, founder of Papa John's Pizza, says his company is losing customers. The biggest problem we have right now is labor. Uh, we simply can't get people to, to come to work. And um, that in itself is problematic because our, our product quality has slipped and our service has slipped. And now all of a sudden we have to raise prices. So you got a double-edged sword of less quality, less service, and then you got to raise prices. In the last month, prices have gone up across the board, including for housing, furniture, used cars, and health care. To fight inflation, experts predict the Federal Reserve may resort to hiking interest rates this year to extents not seen since 2000. But the president's advisors maintain the situation will improve this year. Chenny Wu, NTD News. And to watch that full interview with Papa John's founder, John Schneider, you can catch it at 8 p.m. tonight on the Capitol Report with Steve Lance. And President Biden joined Health Secretary Javier Becerra and Virginia Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger to give remarks on lowering health care costs. My proposal, we will hold drug companies accountable for the absurd price increases. Here's how. Drug companies that increase their prices faster than the rate of inflation once the price is set will face a steep tax. 
The president focused mostly on the need to lower prescription drug prices, saying that Americans pay two to three times more for prescriptions than any other nation. He proposes capping the amounts paid for prescription drugs and allowing Medicare to negotiate drug prices. Biden added that lowering the cost of drugs will help alleviate the cost of inflation for American families. And truckers protesting the vaccine mandate are planning a convoy in the U.S. similar to the one we saw in Canada over the last few weeks. It could start as early as this weekend, and the Department of Homeland Security warns it could impact the Super Bowl. NTD's Melina Wisecup has more. The Department of Homeland Security is tracking potential truck convoys that are expected to sweep through multiple U.S. cities over the next few weeks. The trucker protests may be similar to what we've seen in Canada. In recent days, protests against the COVID-19 mandates have amassed along the U.S.-Canada border. Today at noon, Ambassador Bridge was completely shut down in both directions, blocking traffic between the U.S. and Canada. The Biden administration is now working to divert cargo. There still are some arteries open and we have to make sure they stay open. But yes, our, uh, our, our administration is talking to Canadians, uh, trying to deal uh, with uh, particularly the supply chain issues that have been elevated by this uh, event. And the DHS is concerned those same pileups could happen in the streets of D.C. I think it is powerful to watch. It is an incredible groundswell. It's an organic groundswell from the people. And I think the Canadian truckers are standing up not just for the freedom of Canadians, but for the freedom of Americans. The Department of Homeland Security says truckers are planning to start in California and make their way to D.C., warning that the convoy will potentially start this weekend and impact the Super Bowl. The agency is now working with local law enforcement to help secure the game. We have no information of a specific credible threat against the Super Bowl. What this is all about is planning and preparation to prevent any incident from occurring. DHS told the Epoch Times in an email, quote, We have not observed specific calls for violence within the United States associated with this convoy and are working closely with our federal, state, and local partners to continuously assess the threat environment and keep our community safe. The truck protests in Canada have disrupted supply chains. Automakers' operations have been impacted. Delivery delays have caused companies like GM to cut production at several plants in the U.S. and Canada this week. When asked if the White House is worried about similar disruptions when truckers make their way to D.C., White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said this. Now, everybody can peacefully protest. We fully support that, but it's important to note where the disruption is occurring. When those truckers do arrive here in D.C., intersections like this could be pretty backed up with traffic. The DHS warns that those truckers could arrive as early as March 1st, the same day as President Biden's State of the Union address. But we're still working to confirm some of those details. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskopf, NTD News. NTD will stay in contact with the organizers to confirm specific dates and locations of the trucker convoy. And we have more updates on the truckers' protests from within Canada. Traffic at another U.S.-Canada border crossing is shut down over the blockade. And more local farmers are joining in. NTD's Allison Lee has more. 
The border crossing connecting Sweetgrass, Montana and Coots, Alberta is the third one to shut down over the truckers' protests. The other two blockades are at the border between North Dakota and Manitoba and the Ambassador Bridge connecting Detroit with Ontario. Footage shows a number of tractors joining the truckers and protesters on Wednesday night. Last night at approximately 8 o'clock p.m., uh, the protesters blocked access to the border and the entire highway coming out of Milk River now is stopped because of that. We can't let anyone through. Rebel News reporters on the ground say Canadian federal police issued tickets to almost every vehicle in the convoy and police were also seen at a town in Alberta on a road that leads to the border. There's a similar situation at the border crossing between North Dakota and Manitoba. Freedom! In a speech before Parliament on Thursday, Canada's Conservative Party leader showed support for the protesters' cause but asked them to end the blockades. To the protesters here in Ottawa, you came bringing a message. That message has been heard. Conservatives have heard you. And we will stand up for you and all Canadians who want to get back to normal life. We will not stop until the mandates have ended. She called on the protesters to take down the barricades and stop the disruptive action. Meanwhile, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau continues to denounce the protests. He said in Parliament on Wednesday that blockades cannot stop a pandemic and that his administration will keep relying on science. Allison Lee, NTD News. New York City's largest supermarket chain is upping their security measures and taking extra precautions to prevent theft. This comes after a recent surge in stolen goods that the owner says has cost the store millions. And TD's Jason Perry has the story. You know, you want to go back 30 years when I was a store manager? Or 40 years? I always carried a big bat. I never hit anybody. John Castamatitas is the owner of Gristidis D'Agostino's Supermarkets, which is the largest supermarket chain in New York City. He said there's been a 50% increase in shoplifting at his grocery stores, which has cost the company millions of dollars. He said he doesn't think it's right for repeat criminals to be able to commit the same crimes and get released over and over again. Uh, one of our managers down in our 24th Street store, uh, Ray Acevedo, uh, was attacked uh, with a, what you, a hammer, a hammer, a hammer. and he was with us for 45 years. Castor Matitas began hiring retired police officers, and he's planning to hire about 100 more security guards. The most common items stolen are meat, Tide laundry detergent, Dove soap, and Haagen-Dazs ice cream. The managers say the criminals steal from the store and then sell the merchandise on the street. Chris Palafalos, who is the manager at this Gristidis location, says there's almost no point in calling the police when they catch someone stealing from the store. On the other hand, calling the police on the shoplifter, what do you mean to do? Did you get your merchandise back? I said, yes. Well, you're lucky. Manuel Gonzalez recognized a man who got away with stealing some items from this store. That same thief came back about a week later to try to steal beer. I just had one yesterday, as a matter of fact, just, you know, talking. He came last week and he came back yesterday to re-up, man, but we was waiting for him, so he, he was mad because he left empty-handed. Castor Matitas says they aren't planning to lock up the expensive merchandise. He says he doesn't want to hurt customers' shopping experience because of a few bad actors. He alluded to voting in more security-minded officials during the upcoming elections. The number one question, there's only one thing this November. The number one question this November is, are you pro 
crime and criminals in our streets or are you pro-safety in our streets? One of the security measures this store is taking is lowering the amount of meat on the shelves. That way, if someone does get away with taking something, they won't get away with much. Jason Perry, NCD News, New York. And besides safety in stores, New York City is also battling violence on its streets. Firearms are becoming more of a problem among teenagers in the city. Now the mayor is announcing he wants to do more to protect young New Yorkers. NTD's Arian Pazdar has more from Manhattan. The mayor says young adults get into crime and join gangs because they have no support when they need it. According to him, there are thousands of teens experiencing homelessness and poverty or who need educational support. And just a few days ago, an 18-year-old was shot and killed, which led to the mayor's emotional press conference today. A city, let the work of saving thousands of boys begin. On Sunday, 18-year-old Jaquan McKinley was shot and killed in Brooklyn. The mayor says Jaquan's life started on a downward spiral when his family became homeless when he was only five years old. Right there, our city should have done more. Jaquan missed over 250 days of school, a clear sign that he needed more help. We should have done more. Jaquan had repeated contact with the justice system with multiple arrests, including a gun charge. At this point, we had all the signs you could ever have that a young man's life was in crisis. Now the mayor says he wants various city departments to prevent such cases in which young adults lose their way and fall into a life of crime. I charge every city agency and department with finding new and better ways to help children like Jaquan. I want our housing department to find them homes. Our social services teams must help them navigate the system and give them every support they need. The mayor says he's taking that approach because he was once in Jaquan's shoes, on the wrong side of the law and living in poverty. Ariane Pastar, NTD News, New York. Newly released figures are revealing the real-life impact of Texas's recently implemented abortion law. In the first month under the new law, abortions in Texas dropped by 60 percent. This confirms reports from doctors who've noted a sharp drop in the number of patients at abortion clinics over the past five months. According to the Texas Health and Human Services Commission, around 2,200 abortions were reported in September. This is after the new law, which bans abortions once a fetal heartbeat is detected, went into effect. By comparison, there were just over 5,400 abortions statewide in August. It's unclear whether fewer women are opting to have abortions or they're seeking the procedure out of state, as some reports have indicated. Despite numerous challenges to the new law, the courts have repeatedly upheld it. And private citizens are allowed to enforce it by suing abortion providers who violate the restriction. State health officials say they will release more data on a monthly basis. And Nevada's governor and the state's casinos are ending mask mandates. Effective immediately, masks are no longer required in most public settings. But they are still required in hospitals, long-term care facilities, at airports and on public transport. Mask mandates for students and teachers will end by tomorrow morning. Democratic Governor Steve Sisolak cited the decline in virus cases and the high vaccination rate, 
But he also says that, quote, the pandemic is not over. We're still getting far too many cases, far too many hospitalizations, and far too many deaths. The governor's mask mandate had been in place since last July. Local jurisdictions and businesses are still free to make their own requirements. A Florida bill scorned by LGBT activists and the White House is making its way through the legislature. If passed, it would ban teachers from promoting discussions about gender identity in some classrooms. NTD's Miguel Moreno has the details. The Florida Senate's Education Committee voted this week on the Parental Rights in Education Bill. That bill would in part ban teachers from encouraging classroom discussions about sexual orientation or gender identity in primary grade levels or in a specific manner. Before the committee approved it, opponents came down on what critics mock as the don't say gay bill. I have been embracing children's questions in the classroom for 36 years as a public educator, as a trusted servant, and my first line of defense or help or support is the home. But when you reassert parental authority, sometimes you get the parental authority of my child's father who told him it would be better if he took his own life. I know almost no trans person who has not attempted suicide at some point in their life. And by letting children know as early as possible that they are not different, that they are valid, you can save lives. And passing this bill will end lives, and that blood will be on your hands if you vote yes. Thank you. The senator who proposed the bill says the ban would apply only to kindergarten through third grade classes. Our opponents are saying this is a don't say gay bill. No, it's a don't turn my son into a daughter bill. John Stemberger is president at the Florida Family Policy Council. You have some schools and some teachers, they're introducing this whole thing about choose your pronoun, choose your gender identity, giving them a list of things that they don't, they don't even know what they want for breakfast, for crying out loud. And we're giving them this complex list of genders, confusing them at that early of age. Parents are in the best position to know what's best for their kids. Uh, and this whole nonsense about, oh, the fathers and mothers are going to abuse the kids and kill them. And no, that's baloney, uh, right? The vast majority of parents love their children. Yes, you're going to have outliers that go crazy and do things. That's why we have Department of Children and Families and Child Protection Services, right? The bill would also require that schools notify parents of any changes they see in a child's mental, emotional, or physical health. Parents have reportedly sued a Florida school district after they learned that school staff allegedly hid their 12-year-old daughter's gender dysphoria for months. The school allegedly informed her parents of the issue only after the girl attempted suicide. Stemberger says the bill would prevent similar incidents. Miguel Moreno, NTD News. Bob Saget's family said in a statement Wednesday that the comedian's death last month was due to head trauma. They say he accidentally hit the back of his head on something, thought nothing of it, and went to sleep, adding that no drugs or alcohol were involved. On January 9th, Saget's body was found in a hotel room in Orlando. His family members had contacted hotel security when they were unable to reach the star. Authorities noted that there were no signs of foul play. He had just finished a comedy performance hours before. There had been earlier concerns revolving around Saget's health since he had COVID-19 in December. However, his now widow said last month that her husband appeared to be in good health prior to his death and that his having COVID in December was not anything serious.
The comedian's family also said they are overwhelmed with all the support and well wishes they've received over the past few weeks. Saget was 65 years old when he passed away. And in San Francisco, one man on the street said he is homeless by choice and has lived in the city since June. He reportedly came from Texas and says it's easy to be homeless in San Francisco. We hear more from NTD's David Lamb. The city of San Francisco is one not to forget. It's known for many staples such as its Bay Area scenery, the Golden Gate Bridge and Union Square. But on the flip side, there is significant homelessness and drug use. James, a self-proclaimed junkie living in San Francisco, says he gets welfare payments every month along with 200 food stamps. He says it's easy to be homeless in the city in an interview with Michael Schellenberger, author of San Francisco, a book about homelessness, drugs, and crime in the city. This right now is, is literally by choice. Literally by choice. Like, why would I want to pay rent? James says he gets free money from general assistance all through a phone call. I mean, I get 620 bucks a month, dude. He said he recently sold fentanyl to two teenagers on the streets, but cautioned them on how to use it. He said he needed the money, but wanted to be honest with them. James also said he told the cops about the nearby drug deals. He's like, San Francisco is a sanctuary city. We arrest the Hondurans and we put them in jail around two days later. In January, the city opened the Tenderloin Linkage Center for supervised drug consumptions. This comes after SF Mayor London Breed declared a state of emergency drug crisis. According to a government report, California had an estimated 160,000 homeless people in 2020, accounting for 28% of the nation's homeless population. David Lamb, NTD News, California. Residents in Southern California reported a brush fire early this morning. The fire chief said that the unseasonable blaze is part of a new term for California, saying it's a fire year. Here are the details. A brush fire broke out in the hills of Laguna Beach early Thursday morning. An immediate evacuation order was issued for Irvine Cove and Emerald Bay residents at 6.30 a.m. by the city of Laguna Beach. An evacuation warning was issued for residents residing in the North Laguna area. No injuries have been reported and no structures have been lost. Fire is not spreading rapidly at this time. We had a robust initial response, we always do. Uh, we were quick to call for additional resources. Reports came in about the fire at about 4.10 a.m. It spread quickly through the hillsides near Highway 1. Authorities closed the highway earlier, but it is now open. 75 engine crews battled the blaze along with four Cal Fire air tankers, five hand crews, two bulldozers, and five water-dropping helicopters. We used to talk about fire seasons, we now call them fire years. It's February 10th, the hillsides are green, it's supposed to be winter. The fire erupted amidst a wind advisory for the area. Thick dry brush on the mountain slopes along with the wind are fueling the flames. The gusts are expected to die down, but Finnessy said they could pick right up again. This is the opportunity we look for to jump on these fires and get rapid containment before the winds again pick up. Finnessy said that most of the blaze is away from structures and their concern is to stop the fire from moving north towards Newport Beach. He said it was 5% contained during a morning press conference and that the cause of the fire is under investigation. Brandon Dre, NTD News, Laguna Beach. Coming up, American gold on the ice, Nathan Chen's four-year journey of redemption, and the best day yet for Team USA. 
and we take a look at the barber shop of a Rams superfan. He's been collecting sports memorabilia for decades and says he's excited to see his beloved team play in the Super Bowl. That and more in just a moment here on NTD News. Day six of the Olympics featured American gold in figure skating, a repeat champion in the halfpipe, as well as a win on the slopes, all on Team USA's best day yet. NTD's David Martin has more. Nathan Chen's been on a redemption mission for four years. Thursday's gold medal performance fulfilled it. Chen's performance in the free skate competition included five quad jumps and only a slight hiccup on a combination sequence kept it from being better. When it was over, the 22-year-old had an overall score just three points off his world record and 22 ahead of Japan's Yuma Kagiyama, who won silver. The dynamic skating erased the memory of Chen's Olympics four years ago when his shaky performance in the short program damaged his chances for gold. Three straight world championships later, Chen finally has a title of Olympic champion. Chloe Kim became the first woman to successfully defend her gold in the halfpipe. Kim's first run featured five nearly flawless tricks, including a front and backside 1080, and ended with her putting her hands to her head in amazement. The resulting score of 94.25 was the highest of anyone's three runs to give her a second straight gold. And in freestyle skiing, Team USA placed gold in the brand new mixed team aerials competition to cap their best day yet. USA's Christopher Lillis put the team in front with a flawless aerial trick that earned the highest score of the day. Finally, in women's figure skating, 15-year-old figure skating phenom Camila Valiva reportedly tested positive for a banned substance, according to Russian newspaper RBC, though it's unclear where and when it happened and even if any sanctions will be lobbied against her. Valiva, who skates for what's called the Russian Olympic Committee because of previous doping violations against the country, became the first woman to land a quad jump in the Olympics earlier in the week. Valiva scored the highest in both the free and short programs, helping the ROC win gold in the mixed team event. Dave Martin, NTD News, New York. The Brooklyn Nets have agreed to trade star guard James Harden to the Philadelphia 76ers, according to multiple reports. The Nets, who are also sending Paul Millsap to the Sixers, are expected to receive Ben Simmons, Seth Curry, Andre Drummond, and two first-round draft picks in the deal. The trade breaks up Brooklyn's big three of Harden, Kyrie Irving, and Kevin Durant. The trio led the team to the conference semifinals last year. Currently, Brooklyn has lost nine straight games in the absence of the injured Durant, while Irving has only played 12 games because of the vaccine mandate. Meanwhile, the three-time All-Star Simmons is the headliner in the package coming to Brooklyn. And a Los Angeles barber has been collecting Rams memorabilia for decades. The walls of his shop are decorated with t-shirts, autographed items, and more. And now this Sunday, the lifelong fan will see his beloved team play in the Super Bowl. Here's his story. Every day is Rams Day at the Golden Ram Barbershop in Westminster, California, but excitement is reaching fever pitch ahead of Sunday's Super Bowl championship game when the Los Angeles hometown team will face off against the Cincinnati Bengals. Shop owner Sal Martinez is a lifelong Rams fan. I wake up, I've been waking up like every couple of hours because just the energy. I, I've never been, what's interesting is I've never 
I didn't know how to feel because it's never happened before. 51 years and waiting for an LA Rams Super Bowl. And a lot of the fans. Uh, Surrounded by Rams memorabilia, 59-year-old Martinez takes care of his clients one haircut at a time. But the conversations always lead on how he became a passionate Rams fan. The first time I seen him on TV, I loved the horn on the helmet. So the connection for that, it started then. And so everything that had to do with um, the Rams, I started collecting. I started off with, um, with football cards. Martinez claims to own more than a thousand pieces of memorabilia, ranging from T-shirts, autographed items, newspaper clippings, to photos with some players and NFL legends. Um, in my shop, this is like 30% of my collection. I, in my shop, I have about uh, almost 400. Almost 400 pieces. But of the 400 pieces, this is my favorite. And the reason why it is is because um, when I opened my shop in 1994, I was able to uh, start, you know, I would add all the different pieces to my shop. And when I finally got it looking like this, is uh, this, the Rams won the Super Bowl. So this is from the 99-2000 season. When the Rams left Los Angeles and relocated to St. Louis after the 1994 season, Martinez said he traveled to different NFL stadiums to catch up with his beloved team, but never lost hope that they would return home someday. On Sunday, Martinez says he will be watching the game from the comfort of his living room. Sky-high ticket prices to the Super Bowl are a disappointment, he said. For the NFL, when you squeeze out people that have been passionate fans forever and waited for their team to come home, their team comes home, they build a brand new stadium, and you attend their games, and yet when it comes to the Super Bowl, the biggest game that people dream about attending, and you can't afford it, I think it's just not a good direction the NFL wants to go in. According to ticket retailer StubHub, the average price of tickets sold on the site was around $6,500. On Monday, the day after the Super Bowl, Martinez is already planning on opening the doors of his business to hang the championship banner he had already made and continue celebrating the Rams with his customers. No matter what, always a Rams fan. Yeah. No, I've been there through the highs and lows, and the passion's always the same. But it's always better when they win. But the passion's always the same. Always a Rams fan. Yeah. Coming up, a city council in Southern California voted unanimously to move to a fully green electricity model. They say it will be a first of its kind in the United States, but prices are already higher than the regular local supplier. And we'll be looking at salmon and rice, but not on the dinner plate. Farmers in California are introducing the fish into their flooded rice patties in a move to restore native populations. That and more after the break. County in Southern California is moving to a fully renewable energy model for their power grid. But just months before the switch, prices are rising. Officials say consumers will be able to opt out. Irvine is one of several cities in Orange County to move to a newly established green energy system. Ahead of its pledge to be 100% powered on renewable energy, the city is facing both higher than promised prices and decreased funds due to buying the electricity. Irvine City Council voted unanimously on Tuesday to adopt the renewable energy model for residents and commercial businesses. 
The vote comes two months ahead of Orange County's Community Choice Energy Program. It's no secret that California and Irvine are leading the way in achieving carbon neutrality. And I want to thank those leaders who have been in this fight for decades. Irvine is establishing the startup costs. The neighboring cities of Huntington Beach and Buena Park also plan to use 100% renewable energy. Fullerton will go to 70% renewable. The Community Choice Program buys electricity through the Orange County Power Authority, which was established in late 2020. This is a um, community choice aggregation entity that's run by actual professionals with, dare I say, a, a competent board um, led by the mayor and myself. And some other great Carol said the Orange County Power Authority will be the greenest community choice energy entity in the state. The authority buys electricity from individual power plants instead of Southern California Edison, which provides for most of Southern California. The authority also promised green energy at a lower cost, but its going price is currently 5.6% higher than Edison. The promise, uh, if you'll recall, was that with the Orange County Power Authority, we were going to get um, cleaner electricity at a cheaper price as compared with SCE. New pricing will be implemented for everyone at first, but both residential and commercial customers will have the ability to opt out and return to Edison. It remains to be seen if there can be delivery on that, certainly not in the short term, but even over the longer term. The Power Authority's chief financial officer, Tiffany Law, said they expect opt-outs from 5% of residential customers and 10% of businesses. This is an extremely risky business, purchasing and reselling electricity. Somebody's got to start asking the question, well, what happens if this enterprise falters or fails? Who's going to be stuck with the bill? How much is that going to be? The Power Authority's service will start in April for commercial businesses, and opt-out mailers will be delivered before and after the switch. Residential customers will be switched over in October. Drew Van Voris, NTD News, Los Angeles. Farmers are filling their flooded fields with fresh salmon. As fishy as it may sound, the experiment, a decade in the making, is aiming to restore endangered fish populations and benefit the farmers. Conservation scientists and rice farmers are working together to reclaim the floodplains of the Sacramento River as a salmon habitat, or perhaps a cohabitat. The wetlands that once existed along the Sacramento River are all but gone, now turned into farms or cities. The long-gone salmon habitats were ideal for the fish to grow up in. Yeah, so if you were to go back in time and just look at this landscape, 300, 500 years ago, this would all be a giant floodplain. A lot of that habitat's gone now, um, but we have 500,000 acres of this stuff, California rice. Now, in an attempt to sidestep water and wildlife regulations, rice farmers are hoping that raising a healthy salmon population will allow them to keep their fields submerged. This month of the year, there's nothing going on here. We can't really work the ground. So it doesn't really help us, but it doesn't hurt us at all either. I mean, I think it helps the fish population so you know we feel like if we can help with that you know we don't mind doing it. Combining salmon and rice came after the discovery that decomposing rice straw makes for top-tier fish food which biologists call zoop soup. 
Um, so if you were to just scoop up the water, you'll see these little bugs swimming around in the water. Those are zooplankton. And they grow naturally off of the, the rice straw in these habitats. And those zooplankton are like the filet mignon of Chinook salmon. The fish fatten up on zoop soup made of zooplankton, then journey westward under the Golden Gate Bridge and out to sea. Uh, my favorite part is definitely tracking the migration, seeing, seeing their data points show up on the receivers um, after we release them is very exciting to track where they went. After several years in the ocean, they come back to their breeding grounds. It's really important for us to try to do what we can do for salmon uh, in the valley. They are struggling. They historically used this very uh, bypass here that is now ag lands. And results seem good so far. Carson Jeffries, a researcher for the UC Davis Center for Watershed Sciences, said juvenile salmon feeding in the fields grow two to five times faster than those in rivers. This winter marks the first time that the experiment is being done on a large scale in rice paddies. Conservationists hope to replicate the method on other rice farms for years to come. Coming up, in isolation and hoping for two negative tests in a row, counting down the days and waiting for a call to confirm their hard-earned freedom. That's the life of foreign journalists in Beijing. Even a cup of coffee seems precious there. And the British Prime Minister warns that the stakes are very high and Europe faces the most dangerous moment for decades as he visits Brussels and Warsaw to address the Ukraine crisis. More shortly here on NTD News. An isolated journalist longs for a cup of coffee over a week. That's a scene from 2022 Beijing Olympic Games, one of many. And a German gold medalist says she won't comment until she gets back to her own country. Here's more. At the Beijing Winter Olympics, the key to freedom is a number, 35. That's the key measure of a COVID-19 virus test. A reading below 35 triggers a positive result and requires quarantine in an isolation facility. An Associated Press journalist found himself on both sides of that red line this week, having taken tests that came back both positive and negative. Twice, he was instructed to stay in a holding facility outside the main Olympic Press Center. That's where he waited in isolation for his follow-up test results. A negative result triggers a return to the relative freedom of the Olympics' closed loop. That bubble separates those in Beijing for the Games from the city's general population and comes complete with high walls, police patrols and thickets of security cameras. But a positive test result can mean a swift transfer to an isolation hotel. Swedish journalist Philip Gad just emerged from his stay in one. After eight days in isolation, he finally got the call that released him. So he called me and just told me that you're free. And uh, I don't know, I thought that I would be happier, but I, I was just empty, <laughs> empty and, and a bit stressed because I wanted to get out, get out and start work. An ambulance drove him back to his hotel room. From there, he wasted no time, hightailing it to the National Cross Country Center outside Beijing. Arriving just in time to see Sweden's Jonas Sundling win gold in the women's sprint.
The 28-year-old is a well-known reporter and web TV host, but he became a household name after failing a virus test and getting whisked away in an ambulance, dressed head-to-toe in personal protective equipment. He was the vehicle's only passenger for the trip to the isolation hotel. You were in a foreign country, far away, um, and it was hard to communicate with the people in the hotel. And that was quite frightening, of course. I've started thinking more about how free I am in my normal life, that I can go whatever I want, I can do whatever I want. That kind of, um, that, that was something that I that thought about quite, quite a lot. Spotted in a lobby bar holding a cup of instant coffee, Gad explained with a smile he'd been longing for this for more than a week. A gold medalist from Germany says she's waiting to comment on China until after she leaves the country. The Olympian Natalie Geisenberger was sharply critical of China prior to the Beijing Olympics, but said Wednesday that she would wait to speak on the subject. Yes, I think you have to be a bit careful about when saying what, where, and I think many are feeling this way. She hinted there might be a few more things to be said upon her return to Germany. She leaves China later this week. According to Olympic rules, athletes can raise political or social issues under certain circumstances, provided there is no disruption or disrespect toward fellow competitors. But so far, athletes have stayed silent during the Winter Games. Geisenberger is the most decorated athlete in women's luge and widely seen as one of the sport's greatest of all time. The nine-time world champion and six-time Olympic champion set a new track record in Tuesday's singles division. Her win extends Germany's domination of the event to a whopping 24 years. 14 years apart, two Uyghurs from Xinjiang carried the Olympic flame in Beijing. One is now in the U.S., while his father is locked away in a Chinese jail. We sat down with him to hear his take on this year's Games. A smiling Uyghur athlete featured in the spotlight at Beijing's opening ceremony for the Winter Olympics Friday. But was it a feel-good message about China's ethnic unity? Or in the eyes of the suppressed, a political move to whitewash what's happening in China's Xinjiang region, where the ruling Communist Party is accused of committing widespread human rights abuses. That is very offensive to Uyghurs, especially at this moment, because millions of Uyghurs are languishing in the camps, in the, in the jails. Kamal Turk Yaukum, a former Uyghur torchbearer, now a dissident, calls Beijing's selection of his peer for this year's Olympics an elevated form of puppetry and says China has no position to host the Winter Games. This after reports say Beijing worsened its repression against the Uyghur minority and caused huge suffering to his family. One of the casualties of this play was my father. He was a chief editor and the comp one of the compilers of, the, of those uh, literature textbooks for, for Uyghur kids. So he was arrested in 2016, October, and uh, was sent later sentenced to uh, 15 years in prison. Back in 2008, Yao Kum was a star student, chosen to help carry the Olympic flame when Beijing hosted the Summer Games. At that time, he calls state pressure on Uyghurs to assimilate as repulsive, but relatively tolerable. So being chosen to represent not only China, but also the Uyghurs at an international event, Yao Kum said he was immensely honored to carry the torch. Despite disappointment, organizers wouldn't let him run wearing a Uyghur hat. 
But Uyghur people are proud of their ethnic identity, language, and culture. So the Chinese Communist Party's attempts at assimilation were not successful. So it changed its tactics. They want to either fully eliminate or, or fully like assimilate Uyghurs. Now Yao Kum says China has a much bigger goal. Using Beijing's global infrastructure project, the Belt and Road Initiative, China desires quick and total control over the Xinjiang region because of its geographical importance to the project. Okay. The Chinese dream become a nightmare for Uyghurs and Tibets and other ethnic minorities nowadays. So Beijing ramped up its oppression, starting with abolishing Uyghur language education. In its propaganda, Beijing portrays writers and editors of Uyghur language textbooks as turning Uyghur children into so-called terrorists. So these people has, had to be punished. They had to be severely punished. The, the books has to be confiscated and burned. And the, the, the entire Uyghur language education has to be abolished. As a result, Yao Kum's father was arrested, along with his colleagues. They were charged on allegations that their work editing textbooks were subversive, even though the books had been used for years in schools. By then, Yao Kum and the rest of his family had traveled to the U.S. to study abroad. They haven't returned to China, nor heard from Yao Kum's father ever since. Today, Western researchers, journalists, and governments have documented widespread evidence of the suppression. It shows that more than a million Uyghurs and other Muslim minorities in Xinjiang have been detained in internment and forced labor camps. The allegations are a top reason the U.S. and its allies chose not to send diplomatic officials to the Winter Games. Beijing denies all of the accusations. What's more, China's decision to thrust a young Uyghur athlete into the spotlight only stirred up more controversy. White House spokesperson Jen Psaki told reporters, We can't allow this to be a distraction. From the human rights abuses, the genocide that we're seeing in parts of China. Boris Johnson met the Secretary General at NATO headquarters, where he warned Europe was at the most dangerous moment. Johnson said he had agreed with Stoltenberg on a package of support to strengthen the alliance's collective security. Their meeting it came as Russia held sweeping military drills in Belarus, just north of Ukraine. This report comes from NTD's Eddie Aitken. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson was in a flurry of diplomatic activity on Thursday amid a standoff over Ukraine. In Brussels, Johnson said... He did not think Moscow had yet made a decision over a possible invasion. But that doesn't mean that it is uh, impossible that something absolutely disastrous could happen very soon indeed. And our intelligence, I'm afraid to, 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 to say, remains grim. He met with the NATO secretary at NATO headquarters. This is probably the most dangerous moment, uh, I would say, in the, in the course of the next few days, in what is the uh, biggest security crisis that uh, Europe has faced for, for decades. Johnson said it would be an absolute disaster if an invasion were to happen. He said he had agreed with Stoltenberg a package of support to strengthen the alliance's collective security, sending troops, planes and ships to defend NATO from north to south. Stoltenberg said he had sent a letter to Russia offering to discuss more transparency around military exercises as well as nuclear arms control. The number of Russian forces is going up. The warning time for a possible attack is going down. NATO is not a threat to Russia, but we must be prepared for the worst. He said Russia must choose between a diplomatic solution to the crisis 
or an increased military presence of NATO forces in the alliance's eastern countries. Their meeting came as Russia's joint military drills in Belarus entered this decisive phase north of Ukraine. Footage released by the Russian Defense Ministry shows tanks and missile launchers on the ground, as well as military jets in the air. Stoltenberg said last week that Russia was expected to have 30,000 troops in Belarus. Johnson's visit follows shuttle diplomacy from French President Emmanuel Macron, who visited Moscow and Kiev earlier this week. In contrast to US and UK leaders, Macron has played down the likelihood of a Russian invasion soon. Eddie Aitken, NTD News. The Prince of Wales has tested positive for COVID-19 and is now self-isolating. It's the second time the heir to the throne has contracted the virus after he fell ill with it in 2020. Clarence House confirmed the prince is triple vaccinated, but is yet to confirm whether he has been in physical contact with the Queen recently. And coming up, it will soon be 50 years since the Apollo 16 mission to the moon. Workers at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center are busy cleaning the spacecraft and preparing to roll it out again for the celebration. More on that after this short break. April will mark the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 16 mission that carried three astronauts to the moon. To prepare for celebrations, workers are beginning a big cleanup of the spacecraft. Let's take a look. The Apollo 16 capsule will be soon rolled out again to celebrate the 50th anniversary of its mission to the moon in April 1972. But before that, workers at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center in Huntsville, Alabama, will be busy cleaning the spacecraft. We clean because it is always better when you're looking at something that's nice and clean. But also cleaning is an important part of conserving the object for the future, whether that's a spacecraft or it's a spacesuit or, you know, any kind of museum object will occasionally need to be cleaned uh, in an appropriate way so that you are preserving it for future generations. Workers removed dozens of items that people had stuck through cracks in the case. They said the spacecraft was in pretty good condition, considering its age and how long it had been since the last cleaning, which took place about three years ago. The case is not completely hermetically sealed, which is actually an important thing. You don't want to completely seal it off and have no air circulation. And so we do occasionally get insects and fluff and those sorts of things in there. Sometimes some foreign debris, you know, makes it in there by people trying to do things. The capsule is on loan from the Smithsonian Institution and has been displayed at the museum since the 1970s. A retired NASA astrobiologist who serves as an educator and guide at the museum says decades ago there was once a time when visitors could touch the spacecraft. But preservationists later realized that the capsule didn't hold up well under the constant touch of tourists. This is a piece of history that human beings should be able to enjoy millennia from now, not just in the next few decades or centuries, but uh, it should be kept and preserved because it represents uh, one of the greatest triumphs of the space program of the planet Earth. The three astronauts of Apollo 16, Kat Mattingly, John Young and Charlie Duke, are expected to attend a celebration marking the 50th anniversary of the mission. Black Friday tends to get more TV buying hype. 
But the Super Bowl can also be a great time of year for deals on big screen televisions. Experts say if you're looking to buy a new TV, you could see some of the biggest price drops of the year over the next week. If you can't be at the Super Bowl, watching it at home on a new big screen TV might be the next best thing. And with retailers offering some of the best prices of the year, it might give you a reason to splurge. The Super Bowl is often the first chance that retailers really have to lure consumers back in after, you know, a big holiday shopping season at the end of the previous year. Julie Ramhold, consumer analyst at DealNews.com, says retailers are dropping prices on big screen TVs right now, motivated to move older models out in time for new ones, which typically drop in March or April. And the deals are plentiful right now. Expect anywhere from 25 to 30% off on average. We found this 65-inch Philips 4K Ultra HD TV at Walmart for less than $500. And Amazon's selling this 43-inch TCL Smart TV for just under 300 bucks on its site. And if you're looking for a much, much bigger screen... You can find an 86-inch LG TV at Costco right now for around $1,400. You're not going to find the big screen sets for less than 1000 If you're in the market for a new TV set, Ramhold has these three recommendations. One, decide what features you want. Two, don't buy more than you need. If you don't have the room for it, it's just going to be a pain. And finally, do some research and compare prices. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.